Well, praise the Lord for that. Um, let's turn to the scriptures that we've turned to before in relationship to this subject. Uh, Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. <clears throat> Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. And then Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, you might think that considering just those scriptures that um, surely what Andy just did would be agreeable to um, Christians. But surprisingly, there have been a number of um, groups that would think that that was unscriptural. And we want to Examine that a little bit tonight. So uh, what I'm going to do is a little bit of a history lesson related to uh, playing instruments and singing hymns. Before we start, though, let's pray once again. Father, we ask that this would be helpful to us and uh, something that would enable us to See how to praise you more and more with our lips and our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we just read Psalm 33, which speaks of praising God. <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to read you a couple of comments or uh, sections from... Uh, Christian leaders from the past who have commented on that song. Um, Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing praises. Sing to him a new song. Well, John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 33, said this, Musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. The papists, that is, Roman Catholics, uh, therefore have foolishly borrowed this, as well as many other things, from the Jews. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostle is far more pleasing to him, to God. So musical instruments out the window. Uh, you wouldn't have gotten away with that in Geneva. And <laughs> not only that, not only that, it wasn't just the, the instrument that was the problem there. Because the Calvinist taught what is called the regulative principle of worship. By that they meant that the, our worship had to be absolutely regulated by what's in the Word of God. And that, they said, meant only singing God's songs, which were the psalms. Those are the only inspired songs there are, so you can only sing the psalms, you know, the 150 psalms that there are. 
So only the Psalms of the Old Testament are to be used, and then no man-made instruments. That was, that's what we call today, or has been called, the regulative principle of worship. And uh, the Calvinist put forward that idea, which was the idea that the, this was what it said. The substance of the doctrine regarding worship is that only those elements that are instituted and appointed by command or example in the Bible are permissible in worship, either expressly set down in the Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. In other words, you had to have a Scripture. If you're going to use it in worship, it had to be, you had to show that it was in Scripture. Um, let me read again from Calvin. Justly, therefore, does the Lord, in order to assert his full right of dominion, strictly enjoin what he wishes us to do, and at once reject all human devices which are at variance with, with his command. Justly, too, does he, in express terms, define our limits, that we may not, by fabricating perverse modes of worship, provoke his anger against us. So he says, you have to do it the way God said well, nobody would argue with that in, in a, as a general principle. We should worship God according to how he wants us to worship him. But the way it worked out uh, is basically um, a biblical command is needed for anything that would take place in worship. In other words, the way it's usually presented in brief form, whatever is not commanded is forbidden. If it's not expressly commanded in the scripture, it's forbidden. Uh, you might ask then, how do they deal with the Old Testament examples of, of instruments like we've read here? Uh, well, to sing the praises of God upon the harp and the psaltery, says Calvin, unquestionably formed a part of the training of the law and of the service of God under that dispensation of shadows and figures but they are not now to be used in public worship. In other words, God had that for a brief time uh, under the Jewish dispensation, but that is not for us now. So that's how they deal with that. Now, the Lutherans, you might know, uh, we, we know that Luther took a different position because we sing uh, one of his songs quite often, O Mighty Fortress is Our God. Lu uh, the Lutherans took the position of what is now called the normative principle of worship, Whatever is not forbidden is permitted. If it's not expressly forbidden, then it's permitted. So uh, you see the difference. Whatever is not commanded is forbidden. That was a Calvinist, Calvinist position. And the Lutheran said whatever is not forbidden is permitted. The normative principle of worship teaches that whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship so long as it is agreeable with the peace and unity of the church. In short, there must be agreement with the general practice of the church and no prohibition in Scripture for whatever is done in worship. Now, at least in the past, the Baptists have taken kind of a position between those two. So I want to quote Charles Spurgeon, and he's, this is on his commentary on Psalm 33. Um, he says uh, this. I can find it here. Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord with harp. Men need all the help they can get <laughs> to stir up their praise. But now listen, that, that, that part, I, I, you know, sounds like he's going to be in total agreement with, you know, using instruments and singing hymns. This is the lesson to be gathered from the use of musical instruments under the old dispensation. Israel was a school, was, Israel was at school, and used childish things to help them to learn. But in these days, when Jesus gives us spiritual manhood, we can make melody without strings or pipes. We who do not believe these things to be expedient in worship lest they should mar its simplicity, do not affirm them to be unlawful, and if any George Herbert or Martin Luther can worship God better by the aid of, of well-tuned instruments, 
we shall gainsay, we, who shall gainsay their right? We do not need them. They would rather hinder than help our praise. But if others are otherwise minded, they are not. Uh, are they not living in gospel liberty? Sing unto him. This is the sweetest and best music. No instrument like that, like that of the human voice. In other words, Spurgeon was saying, we're not going to use instruments. He doesn't think that's the best. Uh, that was for the old dispensation. But if some people want to use them, there's liberty to do that. So a little bit of a uh, mediating position there. He used... Obviously, he used hymns. He quote, quoted them all the time in his sermons. Uh, but he didn't allow instruments in worship. But he wasn't going to say that it was sin for others to do that. Well, if you're thinking at all about what's been said here, you might notice that there's somewhat of a contradiction in what's being presented. A contradiction at least by those who take this the strict regulative position. To say, for instance, we can't use instruments because that was just for the Jews in their dispensation of types and shadows, and then to turn around and say we can only sing the Old Testament psalms that are filled with types and shadows. You see that it, it really doesn't fit together very well. Uh, so the question then is lest we uh, decide to chide Andy uh, what about the use of instruments are they proper in worship well I want you to consider this singing to the accompaniment of instruments is the norm in scripture if you go, you can go through the Old Testament over and over again. You talk, it talks about uh, psalteries for the singers. It talks about the instruments that are used. Um, let me just give you a few. If you're taking notes here and you want to write these down, we don't have time to look them up, but uh, you already know these. We've already read a couple of these scriptures. But 1 Kings 10, 12, 1 Chronicles 15, 16, 2 Chronicles 5, 12, Second Chronicles 23, 13. Psalm 33, we looked at that one. Psalm 71, 22. Psalm 98, verse 5. Psalm 147, verse 7. Psalm 149, verse 3. Psalm 150, we looked at that one. Isaiah 38, 20. There's, you could go on and on with those kind of scriptures. Harps alone are mentioned some 50 times. Reference to trumpets are twice as frequent. David appointed 4,000 instrumentalists for sacred music. Let's just look that one up. 1 Chronicles chapter 23. Uh, let's just start with uh, well, verse 1. First Chronicles 23, Now when David reached old age, he made his son Solomon king over Israel, and he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levites. And the Levites were numbered from 30 years old and upward, and their number by census of man was 38,000. Of these, 24,000 were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord, and 6,000 were officers and judges, and 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 were praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise. So you have a couple thoughts here. First of all, David made uh, instruments. And he made them specifically for praising God, and he assigned 4,000 of the Levites to play those instruments. 4,000 were praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise. Praise. So, uh, David was, of course, a songwriter, wrote a lot of the psalms, a highly skilled musician himself. We know he played the harp, and a maker of 
fine musical instruments. Now, it is true that there are no references to instruments, uh, to instruments being used in the New Testament church. If you look through the New Testament, you won't find any instruments mentioned in relationship to worship in the New Testament church. But they are found in the book of Revelation. And Revelation even speaks of the harps of God. Why don't we turn to that one? Revelation 15. Revelation 15, uh, verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So here... I mean, God has harps that he has people using um, in, in heaven. This is a scene from heaven. So it seems to me, since instruments were used in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, we know there's nothing inherently evil about them. I mean, God has harps. It says the harps of God. They can enhance our singing and... Um, What's wrong with having our singing enhanced? I, I think nothing. Now, that's not to say that a cappella singing can also be pleasing to God. I think it can. But when you start saying that that's the only way and making that some kind of a, a uh, command or rule that everyone has to obey, then you're off into a, a realm that I think is obviously unscriptural. Uh, now, there are, I think, dangers related to instrumental uh, music and uh, instrumental accompaniment. I think that by the use of instruments, that music can be made more powerful in terms of its manipulative effect. Now, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's made more powerful in terms of how we can praise God, but it also can much easier much more easily be used for manipulation. We talked about that a little bit last time. Uh, so that's a, a danger. Also, there is the danger of the exaltation of talent above godliness. Just because somebody can play an instrument doesn't really mean they ought to be playing an instrument in church. There can also be a tendency to uh, have something be more of a performance, more of a means of entertainment than a means of praise. So that's a danger. And then I think there can be the danger, uh, especially with some of our instruments today, that they can drown out the, the singing. The, the instrument overpowers the, the singing of the truth, and therefore truth takes second place to the, the sound. And that's a danger. That's a, uh, truth always has to be at the center of our worship. So there is that danger. Uh, we... We went to a, a church when we were in Denton that uh, used quite a few instruments. And uh, I, we liked uh, the singing, some of, some of the contemporary uh, uh, Christian songs that were sung. But there was a sense that the, mu the, the instruments were too loud because you couldn't hear the people singing. Couldn't even hear, hardly hear yourself singing. Uh, so that, I thought, was uh, one thing that detracted. For me personally, it detracted from the worship, uh, even though um, we, it wasn't necessarily the style and it was, certainly wasn't the words because they took... Actually, what they did was take some of the older hymns and, you know, make them into a more modern type of a, 
uh, a melody and a beat to it, but that part was fine, but it was it was the loudness actually that uh, uh, I thought detracted and uh, some of the others of the family did also. So anyway, um, there certainly is a place for instruments in in the uh, worship times that we have. What about the use of hymns? Is, are, is it right that we should only sing the psalms because they are the only inspired singing that we have of things that we know that are absolutely uh, correct? Well, uh, of course, Luther, Luther didn't believe that. And um, actually, before Luther's time, there were others, uh, followers of Huss, uh, sang hymns. And I think probably you could even go back further than that to find hymn singing. Uh, later than Luther, you had the Moravians and Zinzendorf and the Wesleys. Um, they all kind of went step by step there. Uh, the, uh, the Moravians influenced Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf in, influenced uh, the Wesleys. But the person that we usually think of as the one who kind of broke the hold of the psalms upon congregational uh, singing uh, was Isaac Watts. This would be in the uh, 1700s. He was born in England in 1674. A pastor of a congregational church. He was in poor health most of his life, which God actually used because um, he, he wanted to resign his pastorate, that people loved him so much they wouldn't let him, but he kind of didn't do very much. Uh, he only did what he could as far as being a pastor, but he spent a lot of his time writing hymns. Uh, you might have heard of the story related to his childhood verse writing. He had a gift for rhyme, you see. And uh, let me just read this account. Even as a small boy, Watts had a great interest in versifying once during family prayers, he began to laugh. His father asked him, why are you laughing here right during prayers, you know? He replied that he had heard a sound and opened his eyes to see a mouse climbing up a rope in a corner and had immediately thought, a little mouse, for want of stairs, ran up a rope to say its prayers. <laughs> his father thought that this was irreverent and proceeded to administer corporal punishment, <laughs> in the midst of which Isaac cried out, Father, Father, mercy take, I will no more verses make. <laughs> <laughs> so he couldn't keep from doing it, you know, it just <laughs> came out. Well, when he was older then, he complained about the poor quality of the writing of the metric hymns of his day, or the metric psalms. They took the psalms and tried to versify them, and some of them were, it was so contrived, and, and, and I mean, some of them were, were done quite well. Some of the ones that were done in Geneva uh, under, under Calvin and later were, were done, you know, quite well. Others were seemed quite forced if you read through them. So he complained to his father about that. His father promptly challenged him to do better, and he undertook that uh, challenge. During his lifetime, he wrote uh, six, 600 or 700 hymns, uh, and uh, the writer here says that most of his best efforts turned out between his graduation from school when he was 20 and his taking a job teaching when he was 22. During those two golden years, hymns poured from his pen uh, that showed just how much of a genius uh, for writing verse that he had. Now, many of his hymns were based on the Psalms, some more loosely than others. On the other hand, some of his hymns were not straightforward verses translating the Psalms and other Songs uh, were just taken from scriptural ideas. And, uh, of course, Watts was criticized in his day 
by those who said that uh, it was wrong to have these uninspired hymns. Now here was Watts's reply to that. If we can pray to God in sentences that have been made up ourselves, instead of confining ourselves to our Father and other prayers taken directly from the Scriptures, then surely we can sing to God in sentences that we have made up ourselves. We can pray to God, you know, using words that we come up with. Surely we can sing to God that way. Um, he added that the Psalms do not deal with specifically Christian themes except in hidden language and that it is fitting that Christians should include in their worship open and clear proclamations of the acts of God in Christ. See, if you confine yourself to the Psalms, you would never say anything about Jesus. Not directly, I mean in shadows and types you would. So, I want to expand upon those thoughts here um, and give you five areas to consider related to the proper, uh, the rightness of, of hymns. Uh, there are still groups around. There are groups around that say you shouldn't use any instruments. And there are groups around that say you should only sing the psalms. So, how would you answer that? Well, first of all, the first one I think is what uh, Watts was saying. We use uninspired language in other parts of congregational worship. When we pray and when we preach. Preaching is part of our worship, but a preacher doesn't just confine himself to reading verses. So, um, our words have to be in accord with biblical truth uh, in our prayers and in our preaching and in our hymn writing and singing. But that's different than saying they have to be right, lifted right out of the Psalms. And the next thing, there are other hymns in Scripture besides the Psalms. You see, to say that you can only sing these 150 Psalms, first of all, that uh, ignores the fact that there are other hymns and songs right in the Scriptures besides those. For instance, the Song of Moses. Let's turn to Exodus 15. We won't read all of this. It's long. But just to point it out here, there's many of these. You could find, I don't know how many you could find, but I know there's a lot of them in uh, just the beginning. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, and here's this long song, goes all the way down through uh, verse 18 at least. And then after that, Miriam, in verse 20, the prophetess, Aaron's sister took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider hurled into the sea. So there's two right there. Now here's something interesting related to Moses and singing. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Because here's a song that Moses wrote that the people of Israel were specifically commanded to sing, to learn and to sing. And it's not one of the psalms uh, in the uh, 150 psalms. Let's see, start with Deuteronomy 31, 19. God says, Now therefore write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel put it on their lips in order that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. And then verse 22, So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. And then down in chapter 32, you see this song of Moses. 
So that's just a couple of examples of what is found scattered throughout the Old Testament and, I think, in the New Testament also, examples of, of hymns and songs that were not part of the, the, what we call the Psalms. There are little bits in a number of places in the New Testament of what were apparently hymns that were sung at that time and, the, and Paul would just incorporate them into the letters that he wrote. And we're not going to look at those right now, but I do want to look at one, uh, again into the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Here we see a scene again in in heaven. And it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. So here's a song, and it's a new song. It's a new song. Now, clear back in the, in the songs we read that God wanted us to sing a new song. And here, the saints in heaven are singing a new song. So what's wrong with singing a new song? There's nothing wrong with singing a new song. That's the point. Uh, uh, 14.3 <clears throat> Chapter 14, verse 3, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So here again, a new song. Uh, Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. Now I think this is significant in that we just, back in Exodus, we looked at those songs that Moses wrote. So here in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations, who will not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee. For thy righteous acts have been revealed. But again, here they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So, uh, obviously, there are songs to be sung besides those 150 psalms in the Old Testament. Uh, The next point. We're told in the scriptures that we are to teach and admonish one another with the word of Christ. Now let's look at that. Colossians chapter 3. And verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, I think that what Paul is saying here is that there is a place, a proper place, a needed place for Christ-centered psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, And we're to teach and admonish one another through those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, If we just sang the Old Testament psalms, this is one of the points that uh, Isaac Watts made, the name of Jesus would never be in our songs. Think of that. We would sing and never use the name of, of Jesus. But... That's not what God wants. 
He wants the word of Christ to richly dwell within us. And from that comes psalms and hymns and spiritual uh, songs, singing with thankfulness in our heart to the Lord. Uh, Yes, it's true that in the psalms, Christ was there in types and shadows. But we are not to live in the types and shadows anymore. We are in the reality of the new covenant. And certainly we should be singing the praises of Christ in our, our hymns, our singing. And number four, and this one you might think is a little controversial, but I believe that the New Testament church has an ongoing gift of prophecy and that that prophecy is partly manifested in the new songs that God gives us. Let me repeat that. The New Testament church has an ongoing gift of prophecy. We're not talking about foretelling the future. We are telling about foretelling God's truth and God's word. And it's, it has an ongoing gift of prophecy, and that gift of prophecy is partly manifested in the new songs, and I would even add choruses, that God gives his people throughout the church age. Preaching can be prophetic, though it's non-inspired. Nobody can preach to you words that become part of the inspired scripture. And in the same way, um, hymn writing can be prophetic, though it's not it's non-inspired. We're not saying it's the same as the Psalms, but it nevertheless can be prophetic. Uh, good hymns are uh, a sung form of exposition of the scriptures. Good hymns are a sung form of exposition of the scriptures. And I really think, now again, this is, you know, I can't nail this down for sure, but I think that's what Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm. I don't think he meant each one of you picks out one of the 150 psalms that were written. I think he means each one of you has something that God has given you to sing. Each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Um, There is an incredible amount of scripture that tie prophecy and music together. We don't have time to look uh, these up, but let me just give you a few of them here. Uh, Numbers 11, 25, and 26. 1 Samuel 10, 6, and 10. Uh, 1 Samuel 19, 20, and 23. Zechariah 7, 12. Uh, And then some of these um, in the New Testament. But, uh, for instance... Ephesians, links being filled with the Spirit to singing spiritual songs. Let's look that one up, Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Um, If you see that there's this link between prophecy and music, which um, comes out over and over in the scriptures, um, well, let's, let's look at one in the Old Testament. Um, this is a significant one uh, in First Chronicles 25. First Chronicles 25. 
Let me just say this. Another great composer uh, of Christian material, Christian music, called this section, First uh, Chronicles 25, he called this, um, this chapter, or this is what he said. He said, this chapter is the true foundation of all God-pleasing music. That was Johann Sebastian Bach, and he wrote it in, his, in the margin of his Bible uh, in this, right at uh, First Chronicles 25. He says, this chapter is the true foundation of all God-pleasing music. So... You know, that's significant. I think that Bach thought this was such an important section. Well, let's look at it here uh, just briefly here. Now, the problem with this section, it's got a lot of names in it, which I'm not going to try to read through or we'd get get a lot of uh, mispronounced names is what we'd get. Anyway, we could read a little of it. Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and Heman and Jadutha, who were to prophesy. Now, here's the point. They were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. And the number of those who were to perform their service was, and then he goes through a bunch of names here. Um, at the end of verse 2, just to point this out, he names them, and then it says, who prophesied under the direction of the king. And then at the end of verse 3, um, talks about uh, playing the harp, uh, and then it says, who prophesied in giving thanks and praise to the Lord. And then at, uh, let's see, verse 6, all these were under the direction of their father who, uh, father, to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres, for the service of the house of God. Uh, and then it names these men again. So, um, and then lastly, just read, and the number who were trained in singing to the Lord with their relatives, all who were skilled, were 280, 288. Now, I think I've probably, I've probably skipped a couple of places here where it mentions prophecy. But the point is, is that this, this u- using of harps and lyres and cymbals and this singing uh, was uh, called, prophecy, called prophecy. They prophesied uh, in giving thanks and praising God. So the point I'm trying to make here is that... Um, There, I believe that what God is doing as people write God-honoring hymns is a form of prophecy. It's a form of forth-telling God's truth and God's word. And I would just... Uh, I was thinking about this as I trying to expand on that thought, how that we were told in the book of Acts uh, that what was happening on the day of Pentecost was a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel wrote. And he said this, It shall be in the last day, days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So where do we see that? Where do we see men and women prophesying throughout church history? Uh, I really believe one of the places we see it is in the hymns that God has given us. Through, if you want to take the women part of it, through men like, or through women like uh, Franny Crosby. I think she had a form of a prophetic gift in what she was bringing forth there. Uh, Havergal. I think that was a form of 
prophecy. That's part, I'm not saying that's all of what's involved in what uh, was incorporated here and what Joel, uh, or what was written in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 as a fulfillment of Joel, but I think it's some of that. And there is this incredible link between music and prophecy in the scriptures. So, you can take that for whatever you think it's worth. But um, I'm just trying to see here if I had any other thoughts on that. Actually, some of what I, I'm presenting there is from a man named Lee Iams. And I thought what uh, I thought he had some uh, valid point points there. And then lastly, we're talking about the justification for hymns, um, new acts of God bring forth new songs of praise. Whenever God did new things in the Scriptures, there were new new songs written about it. Uh, every major uh, epic in redemptive history was marked by an outpouring of new psalms and songs, and you can go through scriptures on that. Um, when God delivers His people from Egypt, they sang a new song. We looked at that song of Moses. When He gave them water in the wilderness, they sang. When He renews His covenant and commits, uh, it's committed to memory in Deuteronomy 32. We looked at that. Uh, Christ is conceived by the. Holy Spirit and Mary responds with a song. Uh, so the idea is that there's there's a progression in in our singing because there's a progression in the revelation that God has given throughout history, and especially that's true in terms of um, the revelation in Christ. Let me just read what uh, this man said. He said, "The picture is not one of static, one of a static hymnal given by God for all time. Rather, it is the dynamic picture of God continually doing wondrous deeds and His people responding to them with shouts of praise. Just as God's deliverances elicit new prayers of thanksgiving and new subject matter for preaching, so they elicit new songs." In this regard, it is even remotely possible that the great, is it even remotely possible that the greatest divine deliverance of all, the redemptive work of Christ, should be should not invoke new songs. The completeness of redemption in Christ requires a whole new language of praise. Language that incorporates the work of Christ and his once-for-all finished atonement, his resurrection for our justification, and our union with him by faith as a new people of God. So, um, it is precisely the accomplishment of God's mighty works that invokes praises in the Scriptures, and his mightiest work is the work of Christ, and so that we have to have new songs for that. Um, new Acts of God bring forth new songs of praise. If we sing the Old Testament psalms alone, we are we not putting a veil over the glory of the new covenant rather than enjoying the liberty and boldness that is our birthright for those on this side of the resurrection? So those are some uh, thoughts to consider. I mean, I know you don't have you don't have a problem with singing hymns, but some people do, and you need to uh, realize that there are good reasons for what we do um, in our using instruments and our singing hymns. And I would just close. Uh, with the exhortation to those of you that have some 
poetic gifts and musical gifts, um, consider that perhaps you might be able to fulfill some of what's talked about in Acts chapter 2, um, where it talks about your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You might, that might scare you off more than it helps you, <laughs> but I don't want to. Uh, I, it is, I think, something that God is, um, has given to the church down through church history, and maybe he'll give some of that prophetic um, gift to some of you. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean if you write something that it necessarily has to be something that's going to be sung by people a hundred years from now. It might just be for us here. Uh, our little flock right now. But whatever, however God chooses to use it, if, uh, if God gives you something, certainly don't be... Uh, one who would not share it with the rest of us. All right, I'll sit down.